0: This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com slash science to try Audible for free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com slash science to receive your free audiobook today or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, space law and honeybee decisions. But first up, here's the news. Stem cell exhaustion is at the upper limit on ageing. New Scientist reports Henny van Schepper was born in 1890 and died in 2005 after living a robustly healthy life with a clear mind. She left her body to science. Undetected gastric cancer finally killed her at age 115. Examination of her blood and tissues suggests that it was depletion of her stem cells that caused the symptoms of aging she experienced. Stem cell reproduction is what allows our body to repair itself. The team was led by Henny Holstacher of the VU University Medical Centre in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Near the end of her life, about two-thirds of the white blood cells remaining in Van Andoschepa's body originated from just two stem cells, suggesting that all the rest had died. Her white blood cells had drastically worn down telomeres. Telomeres are the end caps of chromosomes, which wear down every time a cell divides to reproduce, like a wick on a candle or a fuse on a bomb. On average, the telomeres on her white blood cells were 17 times shorter than those on her brain cells. Brain cells usually don't replicate much after adulthood. We're born with around 20,000 blood stem cells, and at any one time, around 1,000 are active to replenish our blood. By studying the patterns of harmless mutations in her cells, it became clear that they all had such similar mutations that all of them were generated by the same two stem cells. The absence of cancer-causing and disease-causing mutations suggests that Van Andelschipper had a superior system for repairing aborting cells with dangerous mutations. As her next step, Holstacher hopes to hunt for clues to genes that protect against Alzheimer's, by comparing Schipper's genome to that of people who succumb abnormally early to Alzheimer's disease. The paper was titled, Somatic Mutations Found in the Healthy Blood Compartment of a 115-Year-Old Woman Demonstrate Oligoclonal hematopoiesis," and was published in the journal Genome Research. Holstacher told new scientists that the stem cell results raise the possibility of rejuvenating ageing bodies with injections of stem cells saved from birth, or early life. These stem cells would be substantially free of mutations and have full-length telomeres. Or perhaps we could lengthen the telomeres in the lab and return them with a reset wick back into the body. Listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Space, the legal frontier. Sarah Langston is a space lawyer from the US. She's worked in both the military and the civilian private space industry, and has done lots of aerospace consulting. She's now working on a PhD looking at the history and philosophy of science with regards to bioethics and other ethical implications for developing future space law for continued space exploration and human space transportation issues. She gave a talk at UTS organised by the Orbitoz Space Entrepreneur Meetup and the UTS Space Society. She spoke with me after her talk at the back of the lecture room you can hear the noise of people still chatting in the room afterwards. I began by asking her, what is space law?
2: Space law is really uh, an area of law that incorporates both international aspects of law as well, and treaties, as well as national law.
0: What sort of international treaties are there around space?
2: There are five treaties that comprise the international space law regime. The primary treaty is the Outer Space Treaty from 1967 that sets out the principles for the peaceful use of outer space, which is space is pretty much open to anybody to use it, if, as long as you use it for peaceful purposes. So there's actually three different spheres of law. You have your international law, which is conducted at the UN level. So UN nations agree to these treaties and they adopt them. There's also five sets of principles that supplement the five treaties and those they all govern different uses of outer space so law always governs actors and activities so at the international level you're looking at the actors being states and then at the national level the states incorporate those obligations under the treaties into their national law and then through their national law it applies to private companies and private individuals there is another area under international law before national law is called supranational law and this is where you have regional legal Applications to the countries that are subscribed to organizations like the EU. So the EU has supranational law, and then the countries under the EU also have their national law.
0: So are these similar to other remote areas, like areas on Earth like the Antarctic or the deep sea?
2: It's similar, but space is unique. Space is different, and there are some... Concepts and aspects of space that we have to look at and develop differently than Antarctica, but that definitely is a precursor to it. And there are some implications of law of the sea that are applied to outer space, such as the duty to render assistance.
0: You've mentioned that you can only use space for peaceful purposes. So what sort of things are illegal in space?
2: Okay, what you are prohibited, The, the treaty doesn't define what peaceful purposes is, but it does help to define the parameters of that by stating that you cannot uh, place weapons of mass destruction or uh, nuclear weapons in outer space in orbit. You cannot establish military installations or or place military weapons on celestial bodies. So you you are limited from aggressive uses of space.
0: And does that limit enforcement of laws in space?
2: Enforcement of of laws is, is actually a different concept under international law, and that is difficult because when you are dealing with treaties how do you enforce a treaty? Part of it is going to be practical implement, um, implementation and that you will look to the national licensing scheme and how does the nation before it licenses um, its, its its corporations or its own agencies to conduct activities in space it obviously has to have measures and procedures in place to make sure they don't violate international law because international law does extend to outer space that's uh, stipulated in the outer space treaty.
0: So there's things like non-appropriation and that means you can't just claim the moon for your country.
2: You cannot own. You don't don't have ownership rights in space. You cannot claim by uh, by being there or by. Uh any other means that this treaty is very particular to that it is a very utopian principle it is one that's highly contested nowadays because you do have companies that are looking to protect their interests if they're going to go up and conduct the activities spend the time the money the resources and the and take on the high risk and liability to conduct a, an activity let's say on the moon they want to be able to protect their interests up there property rights give you that protection without it it's harder to legally enforce any if there's a damage or if you have a you know a claim or an issue So yes, right right now you cannot own territory on the Moon. You cannot own the Moon. You cannot own a piece of the Moon. Well, you can take a a Moon rock under the Outer Space Treaty. The Moon Agreement is a different story.
0: There's companies and governments talking about mining the asteroids as well as eventually mining helium-3 on the Moon. Is that all illegal under current law?
2: No, under... If you you don't look at the Moon Treaty, (laughs) um, then yes, you are permitted to do that. Now, there could be a question as to if you mine an asteroid to the point where you deplete it or you obliterate it, is that appropriation? Perhaps that is an issue, um, but otherwise, yes, you can use the resources of outer space currently under the current regime, for commercial purposes or for scientific purposes.
0: And there's something equivalent of the law of the sea for astronauts to look after each other.
2: Yes. So Article 5 of that Outer Space Treaty does uh, place an office. Op- it's the only obligation that's actually placed on astronauts um, that uh, requests them to render assistance to other astronauts who are in distress if, if possible. Yes. And that does stem from traditional law of the sea.
0: And you are saying that even debris has ownership and restrictions. You have to get permission to clean up space rubbish
2: yes this is very interesting so you cannot own space or celestial bodies but what you do own what you do have a right to is the objects that you place in space so your satellites um, your space stations uh, your space vehicles and anything that goes up into space if you leave it there you still own that object so if you have the Apollo missions that left objects on the moon well the u.s still owns those objects they do not own the moon the, the territory of the moon on which those objects are placed but that they you the concept of uh, abandonment does not exist in space because we do not have the intention to, ab- to relinquish ownership. You just don't have access um, and the capability to retrieve what you do own. So salvage rights do not ex- extend to space right now, no.
0: So if you did want to clean up all the debris in orbit, it could be a very lengthy process.
2: It's, it's a very interesting problem. There are several companies who are actually uh, looking at creating the technology to clean up the space debris because it's a huge problem. We know we need to do it. It's just that whatever debris they clean up, they're going to have to gain permission of the state who owns those pieces, whether it's satellites or, or small, small bits of debris, in order to be able to um, legally clean it up. Yes.
0: So there will be a whole art in identifying small debris?
2: Yes, yes. Actually, not too long ago, the U.S. signed an agreement with Japan, and Japan is supposed to be um, developing the technology to be able to track the really small bits of debris. Whether that will help with identification, we'll we'll see, but at least tracking it is the start.
0: So there could be space forensics?
2: Very much so. (laughs) That would be interesting, yes. So you're
0: not allowed to have police in space because they would be an armed force?
2: Well, they are... there's no prohibition on military personnel in space. So it's, on, it's not on the personnel themselves. But the prohibition is on creating military bases in space or creating fortified armament systems in base and, or in, uh, on celestial bodies. Um, or in, in orbit, you're restricted to the types of weapons that you're allowed to put into space. That's what's restricted, yeah.
0: And what about people that want to do things like geoengineering? They want to block out some sunlight to cool the Earth
2: well, that's a very interesting concept, I would like to see that. That has an effect on Earth?
0: Yes. yes. Do you want me to explain a little bit? Yes. All right, so there's two types of geoengineering they're talking about. One is where they put things up in the upper atmosphere to reflect back some sunlight and cool the Earth. Another is where they put things in orbit to reflect sunlight back away from the Earth and cool the Earth that way.
2: Well, space doesn't have... It's, it's an area of non-jurisdiction, so technically there isn't a problem with putting the objects into space. Now, the effect that it will have on Earth, I would think that's an international problem because that's going to... As the reflectors pass over multiple countries, that's going to affect more than one country. So, yes, more than one country has an interest and should be. this should be addressed at some appropriate level on the international level.
0: But it doesn't currently come under the treaties, you would think?
2: Well, it depends what the harm is. So... So law always governs the actors and the activities if there's harm that is likely to occur or it does occur as a result of those activities and the liability convention is triggered.
0: Because one of the concerns is that it might affect the monsoons and the weather generally to take the rain away from countries. Okay,
2: all right. So then we're looking at a lot of uh, applicability issues with regards to uh, climate climate change. And how do we enforce that? How do we decide on that? It's very interesting questions. (laughs) Yes.
0: And someone asked a question about sending the people who wish to go for a one-way trip to Mars?
2: Yes, well, right now, the US is the only country with laws that govern commercial human space flight. And under those laws, it requires informed consent. So the individual has to know, it has to have it in writing, it has to be able to understand the terms and conditions and the risks, they have to be told the risks by the companies. There is a question as to whether it's ethical to send humans knowing that it's going to be a one-way trip, knowing they're going to die out there, or knowing that their life is going to be shortened as a result of the inherent risks that are involved in the space environment, and also just space travel in general. So perhaps it's more of an ethical question as to whether we should allow this, and at what age should we allow somebody to decide to do this? Is 18? Is it 30? If you talk to different people, they're going to have different perceptions on this. But at a social policy level, we should decide. And ultimately, we do want to decide the question of whether children should be allowed to fly into space, whether for long-duration missions or short-duration missions. But at the same time, somebody's going to have to be first. So we will see.
0: One final question. The Moon Treaty, you might be perhaps an issue for countries that have signed up to it, like Australia. Can those sort of treaties be amended, or would they have to be discarded and a new one written?
2: Most treaties have provisions for amending, because, and, and most treaties actually have a term that says they are they exist for a certain amount of time and then they'll be extended. So it, it's possible for an, amending a treaty. The only problem is it's really hard to amend a treaty. It takes so long to actually develop the terms for that treaty. If you change it, there's a high risk it, it might not survive. I think space is is really important. I think it's a, it provides a vision, especially for young people. I think it's a unifying factor. It's something that can bring everybody together in science, technology, just in what it just the vision for humanity. But at the same time, we have to be careful with what we're doing. We have to actually think about the implications of our actions and what that will mean for us, for future generations, and for other non-human environmental uh, contents, too.
0: Well, Sarah Langston, thank you very much.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Sarah Langston has taught science and ethics at the University of Sydney, where she's also pursuing her PhD in the history and philosophy of science. Originally from California, she obtained her Bachelor's in Politics and History in 2003, a Doctor of Jurisprudence with a specialisation in Public International Law in 2006, and a Master's of Law in Air and Space Law from Leiden University, the Netherlands, in 2008. In addition, Ms Langston studied at the ISU Space Studies Programme in 2009 at NASA, taught Space Law at the University of Mississippi's Centre for Remote Sensing, Air and Space Law, and she's a member of the New York Bar. And now, FameLab. FameLab is a competition for early career scientists to communicate their research in only three minutes in an entertaining and informative way in front of a live audience. Here's two of the finalists from FameLab Australia after their presentations at the Powerhouse Museum. You can hear the audience chatting in the background. Dr. Matthew Baker is a biologist from the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute where he's researching flagella, the outboard motor of single cells.
1: I work on the bacterial flagella motor. So we, this is basically the motor that rotates the propellers that make nearly all bacteria swim. So we're particularly interested at the moment at trying to build this motor up from a brick by brick from the ground floor, essentially. So we've done a lot of work looking at the whole motor, which means we can sort of torture it and apply forces to rotate it the wrong way and see how it works. But trying to build it itself is a very different question. And so are you building it by... Giving genetic instructions to a cell, so this is is actually an in vitro, so outside of the cell construction. So we're, we're we're purifying the proteins that constitute the flagella motor. So there's forty five proteins, but there's really only maybe about ten or fifteen that are involved in the, the bit that rotates, the rotor, and the parts that act on the rotor, the stator, which stays still. So we purify these proteins in E. coli, which is you know getting the genes to express lots and lots of, say, one of the proteins and then busting up the cell and collecting all that protein. Then when we have that, we've got one ingredient, so then we build a scaffold out of DNA, so if you, you can make really long strands of DNA and have a lot of little bits of DNA and you can staple it together and make whatever shape you want. So by doing that kind of thing, which is called DNA nanostructures, we can make a, a scaffold, which is a ring, and then on top of that ring we can start to assemble the parts of the motor, so the proteins that we've previously purified and that naturally will, will like snap together to form a ring. So we're able to guide that process by using our scaffold. And about how small are these motors? So the flagella motor is 40 nanometers across in size, so that's like a millionth the size of a grain of sand, but it's, it's something like the length of your fingernail grows in a 25th of a second or something like that. And these motors drive a whole lot of pathogenic organisms. Well, they ultimately are responsible for motility in all bacteria. So some, very few bacteria are pathogenic because they've inherited things along the way that cause them to be toxic, say, to your stomach cells. So they're responsible for the motility of those and the motility of, of all bacteria. So one use of this is to understand motility, to work out non-antibiotic ways to target pathogenic bacteria, because antibiotic resistance is one of the big public health issues of our time. So that's one possibility, but we're really quite fundamental. We're looking at this from an engineering perspective, how to build the motors and how to understand how the motor assembles itself. So you might be able to use these motors um, in some way, eventually yourself, once you've got them going. Well, that's the hope. I mean, synthetic biology is, is, is a really hot term and it's widespread use in use but we're looking to try and understand that so first of all you've got to build something that already exists and then you can start working on how to build other things so there's quite a lot of steps on the way first we're building actually the switch complex of this motor so one of the things I didn't explain today was that the motor not only can rotate very fast it can actually change directions and change directions very quickly and that change in directions is how bacteria navigate their environment to where they need to be i.e. where there's more nutrient. So we're first building something that can switch, and then we're gonna build something that can rotate, and then maybe we can start building a novel swimmer. Right, and with the things that rotate, where are you up to? So right now, we've, we've got the scaffolds that, are, that hold the base together, so we've assembled those, and we're starting to do the first layer of the rotor. We know that it'll automatically oligomerize, but we wanna make rings of different size to show that we can control that, and then we can assemble the next layers, and then we can send in attractants that will change the structure of the ring, which is kind of how a switch event happens. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks.
0: That was Dr. Matthew Baker talking about flagella at FameLab. James Makinson is a field biologist from Sydney University Behaviour and Genetics of Social Behaviour Lab. He's researching decision-making algorithms based on how honeybees decide and act.
3: So I was specifically looking at different species of Asian honeybee, and I wanted to see how differences in nest biology affected the decision-making rules that these species used.
0: How are you looking at them? What are they doing?
3: So basically what we do is we extract a colony from the wild, we relocate them to a completely novel environment, we set them up on an observation board, and then we film their behaviour. We also record the... the, the Sound that they're producing as well. They produce a number of auditory signals as well, and basically, after many, many long hours of decoding uh, the waggle dance information with a custom-made MATLAB script, we have we produced a fantastic data set which showed what they were pointing at.
0: So, what sort of decisions do honey bees need to make?
3: Basically, they need to select a, um, a location for to construct the new colony, which preferably is, or in the open nesting bees, they want to be as close to forage sources in the surrounding area as possible. In the giant Asian honeybees, they actually like to aggregate in large aggregations of up to a hundred individuals. So they're also taking into account how many other colonies are around in the surrounding area. Um, the cavity nesting bees have some different rules. They're, they're looking for a permanent structure which is gonna survive for multiple years. So it, for them, they really pay a lot of attention to the quality characteristics of this actual nest site
0: the bees go out and explore and find this information and they come back and they communicate to the hive, is that right?
3: Yeah, so the swarm leaves the hive and and then it forms a temporary cluster nearby. The scouts, when when they've found a location, they return to the swarm cluster itself and they start producing, it's a combination of vibratory and mechanical movement which indicates distance, direction and quality.
0: And then that information is used what, by the queen?
3: No, the queen doesn't actually have any active role in any kind of, any of the decision-making pro- processes in the, the the hive. So the the title queen is a bit of a misnomer, it suggests that she's in charge of a lot of activity. She doesn't actually do anything but reproduce. So she lays around 5,000 or more eggs a day and that's her sole job. She doesn't instruct any of the bees to do anything, she just breeds essentially.
0: So are the decisions made by the hive?
3: So the The decisions are made by individual bees behaving, reacting the same way to similar stimuli. And And so this results in a collective behaviour. So every individual unit is not particularly bright and it doesn't have all the information which the colony has access to, but through their collective interactions they're able to reach decisions.
1: Um,
0: And so this decision making algorithms that you're studying, how are they going to be used outside of bees?
3: So I should explain, I'm the field biologist, I do the observations in the field. In our lab we have an in-house mathematician who creates mathematical models based on the behaviours that I've been observing. And then uh, we also have affiliations with other people, so for example I have a colleague in France who is working on a data mining program which is based on ant behaviour, not bee behaviour, but we, we just hope that when we get our work out there and The publications I talked about tonight, one's already published, one's just been accepted and another one's just been submitted. So once it reaches the wider community, we hope that it will inspire people who are are trying to think of uh, solving complex decisions in the human realm.
0: Well, I mean, it sounds to me like if the insects are not very bright, but when they all get together, they can make smarter decisions. You could get lots of little processes, perhaps, talking together and making better decisions.
3: Well oh, exactly. So what we'd really want to get from, from it is see what, which are the fundamental behaviour rules the bees use in order to interact, which obviously results in this collective behaviour. So, as I said, none of the individual units are particularly bright, but through the interaction of these same rules multiplied over hundreds of individuals in the colonies, it results in a more complex uh, decision being made by the colony as a whole. So you actually see similar patterns, for example, say, in human crowds. So we, uh, while everyone in the crowd might be making a conscious decision about I want to go home, I got to get to my car now, but we're also re- reacting to the stimuli around us. So how close other people are to us, how close our goal is, and that as a group you can model the predicted direction that the crowd is going to move based on these simple factors. So in, in a nutshell, We also exhibit many collective behaviour phenomena, which you can also study, like the honeybees.
0: Well, Matt, thank you very much. You're welcome. No worries. That was James Makinson talking about the decisions of honeybees at the FameLab presentations at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you want to hear more episodes. If you're doing something sciency and cool, tell me the story and send me some photos. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and to Triple H in Hornsby, Coringai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com, and do check the website for more information about this week's show. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and please review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free audiobook of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I am Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first
2: thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Whatmore on guitar.